I'm Kasada Bullman. Today, my guest is Amy Emberling. She joins us from Michigan, where she is a founding baker and partner at Zingerman's Bakehouse. Emberling grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada. She learned to cook and bake in Paris and at restaurants around Michigan. Her journey to the present moment is not traditional. In fact, higher education is woven in. Emberling attended Harvard University, where she studied social movements, and she received her MBA from Columbia University. We'll be discussing the connection between social movements and food. Also, we'll discuss an idea that divides people into two groups, fixed mindset and growth mindset. We'll explore how our beliefs about our capabilities can influence how we learn and which paths we take in life. Plus, we're all juggling a million things and constantly on the move, and so are our thoughts. We'll talk about the importance of getting out of our heads and putting overthinking on the back burner. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Amy, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today, or it could be a meal from any time in your life that you have a really great memory about. Hmm. Well, today I have not eaten yet because I tend not to eat breakfast. I don't eat until around 11 every day because that's when I'm hungry. And I've been doing that since I was a child. Um, breakfast was just not a deal for me. I have tasted two things this morning. And so I had, uh, we're going to launch a new babka. It's uh, called Eve's Apple Babka. Uh, And I had a little taste of that and tasted really great. And uh, I made some baked oatmeal this morning because we're doing a photo shoot for our next book and we needed a picture of it. So I had a little taste of that. Um, So that's a little bit about my habits. And then, you know, you asked about like some meal. I have had so many wonderful meals um, that it's hard to imagine choosing one of them. Um, but uh, And it was interesting. My mind goes to like a long time ago when I was very young. And my husband and I were um, living in Paris. We really had no money and we had no business doing this. But we it was our wedding anniversary. I think it was three years. And we went to Jamin. Uh, Paul Robuchon, who's no longer with us, his restaurant, we went for lunch. It was a many hour meal. I remember it cost us $600, which of course we did not have to spend. And uh, it was just unbelievable. And I'll never forget um, this sort of, I can't remember the French name for it. It was this um, chicken sort of consomme, but it wasn't a consomme. It was so thick that literally your spoon could... I believe it could stand in it, and I, I can still see that picture in my mind. So that's where my mind goes a long, long time ago, um, 1991, summer. No, I guess it was May 7th because that was our anniversary. Wow. What a memory. Oh, you know, just yeah, Paul Robichon, you know. <laughs> well, well, we had no business doing that. Right. And you wonder, I wondered, like, how did we know? You know, this was before the internet and. Oh, but we, you knew, you know, there were books, there were, you know, you talked, you, so you found these, these things out and we were into splurging. So we did it. And interesting, $600 for lunch. For lunch. Yes. Yes. The other thing that I'll remember, which is sort of funny is seeing, um, uh, 
older French men with younger women in the restaurant, which I believe were probably their mistresses, which was eye-opening to us as we're, what's going on here? This food is great, but what are those people doing at that table over A there? A little <laughs> afternoon delight. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very funny. Ugh. Well, since you're going back, it's good, actually, because that's early 90s, and as we normally do, we want to start out with your early career. So in 1988, a few years prior, you moved to Ann Arbor and you worked in some local restaurants during that time. And I'm trying to understand what was the Ann Arbor restaurant scene like when you arrived? What type of restaurants were you working in? What were you doing at these restaurants? Were you a baker at this point? Give us that rundown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So Ann Arbor at that time was um, just, I think, sort of beginning to have, uh, it was at the beginning of having a very robust restaurant scene. There were restaurants. I worked at a place that was called The Earl. I don't remember exactly what year The Earl started. It might have been 1980. It might even have been 1975. And it's still open today, which is sort of interesting. So it's an iconic Ann Arbor restaurant serving uh, French and Italian country food. At that time, there's also a restaurant called The Movable Feast, which was more high-end and French. Zingerman's Deli was open because the deli had opened in 1982. Um, And then there were sort of some like campus iconic restaurants um, that um, people might remember. Uh, There was a bagel place. I, I can't remember all the names of them. But what was, and so, but there weren't a lot of, really great restaurants. And now there are many, many more. And that sort of downtown started to change in the 90s. When I came, there was a real downtown. Main Street had like a stationery store on it. And um, uh, there was a bank, which is kind of typical. But there were places that you go and shop and do normal, you know, routines. Now Main Street is, you know, almost all just restaurants and sort of fun um, stores that you could buy, you know, art pieces or something like that in. Um, so Ann Arbor evolved a lot. There was also, was not a, there was not a a cafe as I would have known a cafe in town. Um, I had come from Cambridge in, uh, Boston and we had some great cafes. I remember coming and there wasn't a cafe. And I said to my father, Hey, you know, um, I'd like to open a cafe (laughs) in Ann Arbor. There isn't one. We got to have a cafe. And he said, you're not going to lose all the money I spent my life earning, uh, uh, you know, you don't know anything about having a cafe. How about you work in a cafe first? And then we can talk about you uh, opening one. So that was kind of the scene of Ann Arbor. It was, had some old school restaurants um, and then a few kind of up and coming. And what are you doing at this point in restaurants? Oh, right. Okay. So I um, got a job at the Earl. I had never worked in a restaurant before. I can still, I remember um, going, the Earl is in the basement of an office building. I remember going down there. It was dark, but it was, you know, it was summertime. So it was, and it was in the middle of the day. And I met the chef who just retired about a year and a half ago. Her name is Shelly Adams. And she was sitting there and she had a head of like Shirley Temple curls. And as she was um, interviewing me, she was like, had one her finger in one of her ringlets. She was clearly thinking about, ah, what do you think about this person? And I 
um, told a little fib. I said I was a fast learner. And I got to tell you, I am not actually a fast learner. I am one of those people, like, I will make every mistake that someone could possibly mistake do in a recipe before I actually get it right. And I had never worked in a restaurant until she took a big chance on me. But I, they hired me just as a daytime prep person. So it was a good entry-level job. I did all the prep work for the salad station. And I learned to bake the bread that that restaurant served, which was a big deal at that time that a restaurant was making their own bread. Uh, And I was the assistant to the pastry chef. So that's where I started in that restaurant. I worked there for about three years. I was a super responsible person. And um, compared to some of the other people who were working there who knew how to have a lot more fun than I knew how to have, um, I ended up getting, you know, being advanced. It ended up being the sous chef. I had no, I mean, there's no reason I should have had that job other than just um, coming to work every day and trying to do a good job. So that was my early, that was what happened. That was sort of what I was doing in the early days. I did eventually go and work in a restaurant called La Cocina del Sol. It was owned by a man named, a chef named Jimmy Schmidt, who is still here. I don't, like a lot of people don't know him. I think of him as one of the first restaurateurs who had multiple restaurants. Mm -hmm. And his most famous one was called the Rattlesnake Club. And then he opened up a variety of other ones in the Detroit suburbs. And I worked in that restaurant. It was in a place called Southfield. Um, I don't know how long, maybe nine months or so I had to commute. It wasn't, it was sort of that Tex-Mex food that was, you know, there was a period when that was kind of big, not really the food that I was that interested in. So I worked there and then I got a job working at a place at this restaurant that I called the, that I referred to called the movable feast, but they also had a bakery and I worked in the bakery for some period of time. Uh, And it was soon after that, that I um, decided to, um, that I really wanted to go to cooking school and really, you know, learn how to do these things and not, you know, you learn a lot. You learn some very important things on the job, but you also can learn some very valuable things by going to school and sort of learning the most perfect way of doing it. Um, so you know what, how to how to morph it or how to change it, but still get that great food when you're in a in a restaurant setting that may not always allow you to do it in the traditional way. And also it allows you the time. You may not have time to do that yeah. and immerse yourself <laughs> yeah. in the learning. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, so I guess we'll go, you know, originally become one of the original bakers when Zingerman's Bakehouse opened. So I'm going to roll a few questions into one with the intention of having you take us back to those early days as you all are launching this business. I'm curious how big or small is your team? Any challenges that stand out? Any highlights or successes that you're proud of? Basically, what was a typical day like for you back then? And again, basically trying to get the overall feel for this time or moment in your life. When the bakery started, it was only to make artisan bread. And I had a real love of cooking and a huge love of making pastries, but not, you know, a little bit of curiosity about bread, but not great. However, I was told by a chef um, that a great thing to do is to work at a startup. And so this was a startup. And so I thought, okay, maybe this will be an interesting opportunity. So the, I, uh, there were eight of us at the time when the bakehouse opened. We were in 3,500 square feet. We had this tiny little oven that maybe, maybe you could bake 
a hundred loaves of bread in. I can see the space. It was so clean, shiny floor. All the equipment was, you know, sparkly and unused. And we were just really excited uh, because it was new. We thought we were, we had a great, the founder of the bakehouse is Frank Carollo. And I got to tell you, I mean, he's sort of this funny mix of this quiet engineer type. He has an engineering degree from uh, Michigan, but also charismatic and charming. So somehow he had us all believing, and I think it was so, you know true that we were doing something special, but we thought we were doing something super special for Ann Arbor, that we were bringing this artisan time-honored tradition of baking bread to the community. And there weren't uh, there were no other artisan bakeries in southeastern Michigan at that time. Maybe it, it may have been someone in the west of the state, but not in Ann Arbor. And there's, and so you couldn't really get anything other than what most of us know that you can buy in the grocery store. So there was a lot of excitement, and there was a huge amount of learning that was going on because none of us had done it before. Frank didn't know how to do it. And so, right, he didn't know. So we had a te- our first teacher's name is Michael London. He, uh, is a baker in upstate New York. He, at that time, he had his own bakery called Rock Hill Bread. And then he had a place called Mrs. London's. Right now, he's essentially retired. And Michael came for five days to teach us how to make bread. And he arrived with a little, like, little pieces of paper clipped together that he had in his pocket. And um, Frank who was like Mr. Precise, was running around behind him, actually writing things down. And Michael would, you know, take a handful of flour and throw it into the bowl. And Frank, you know, you could, this, Frank perspires more than anyone any I, I've ever known. And, you know, he'd be perspiring and he'd take a handful of flour and then put it in a bowl on the scale to see, okay, how much did he really put in there, you know? Because he knew that in four days, Michael was going to walk out and we needed to know how to make this bread. And uh, so there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of uncertainty. And like in many startups, whether it's a food business or, you know, an IT business, there's a lot of change at the beginning. So every day was a little bit different. So it's for people who don't like that, that was a bit of a challenge. Or, you know, like if you had a day off and you came back, several things could be different. Some people did not appreciate that. Some of us loved it, (laughs) loved that excitement and the charge of it. And so... Uh, those, that's what the early days were like. My days were, you know, 10 or 11 hours long. I was an hourly employee, but you know, I was, you know, we wanted to stay. We wanted to, we wanted to help this place be successful. And it was during, you know, we didn't have cell phones and my husband, we already had a child. My husband would call to find out where are you and when are you going to come home? (laughs) Right. And he he wasn't broken into the food world yet. We're like, hey, I'll be home when I'm home and just be patient. And then Frank would answer the phone and then he would be so annoyed that this guy kept on calling for me. Anyway, so there's a little, you know, there's that break in period of life of what's it like to work in the food business. Um, From the day to the day point, we all did everything. So, you know, we, uh, we mixed, we shaped, we baked, we sorted the bread and got it into whatever containers we were going to use. At that point, it was banana boxes, which you don't use because they're full of pesticide now. And we delivered. And then we'd get into this old van that we had bought. We would take it. Or we only had one customer at that time. That was Zingerman's Deli. We'd put the bread in the van. We'd go and deliver it. And then we'd come back. And then you know what? We'd mop the floor. And so a big part of those early years for me was listen. Frank would, is a big music person. He'd put on Pearl Jam. 
It was great. And then we mopped 3,500 square feet. And one of the things I was most proud of telling my family was, I now know how to really mop a floor. Even though he, you know, Frank was getting this idea into your head, like you're doing something really special and you're saying, I don't know if we all, we all were kind of eating it up. Some of us were eating it up, but was it maybe really special? Because if there was no artisan bakery there, it sounds like maybe it was truly something special that you were providing to the community. And I'm wondering if also Zingerman's Deli at that time, did they go from not having artisan baked bread or were they baking in-house to all of a sudden because of the bakehouse, now you guys, like did their deli go from normal to artisan bread overnight because of you guys? Yes, so they were not baking. And so that is exactly what happened. And I think... Um, Casada, this is one of the things that I kind of struggle with just on a intellectual level, um, or maybe it's an existential level of, of thinking about, are we doing something of value? And so in those early years, you know, I can be a little skeptical at times. And so that's what you're sensing or hearing from me. Um, but what I've come to believe and what I share with people when they come to the bakery now to work, I say, you know, we're not on a mission to bring world peace. Of course, we would wish that there were. We're not University of Michigan hospital system where we're curing people of terrible diseases, but we are doing something that is special every day for people because we bring little moments of joy, little moments of deliciousness on a random Tuesday morning. You know, you can come in and just get something nice to eat and some really great service. Somebody who's kind to you or knows your name or just goes the extra mile for you. And then on holidays, we certainly contribute to people's enjoyment of those. And for lots of people, you know, we've been, it's going to be our 30th anniversary on September 12th. And so some people grew up with this food. I mean, this is their food. This is what they think of as a scone or bread or a birthday cake. And so in those ways, yes, they're not the big, big things, but I've come to realize that really what a lot of joy comes from in our life is just the little things. So I do think it is. I do think that we've brought something. I think we did bring something for the deli. The deli brought something for us because we were in a very fortunate situation. They were a you know, decent-sized business at that point. They'd been in business for 10 years. So we were able to sustain ourselves for a year and a half, almost two years, without taking on any other business by just supplying them. So huge gratitude for them. They had to do a lot of marketing to get their customers to be happy about the change because not everybody in 1992 was looking for artisan right. bread. Um, that, you know, maybe there were some, you're, oh yeah, for sure. I mean, now it's like everywhere. Now you watch a Wendy's ad, they'll tell you the bun is artisan or whatever. But look, in 92, there were customers that were saying that to them in the deli, you ruined my sandwich or I hate that bread. It's burnt. Or that bread is too, it, uh, it's a workout to chew that bread. Or I cut the roof of my mouth because the, you know, the lip on the bread was sharp. So there was a lot of marketing. We, we already wrote a piece called Dark Shadows. It's like a man in a trench coat and in black, you know, and to explain why you want to bake bread with, you know, this amount of color in it and how it brings flavor and that it's not burnt. So it, it, it was not, you know, just like, oh, thank you for coming and bringing this bread. Some people, yes, but lots of people are like, what is this? 
And why should I like it? And really, why should I pay that much money for it? <laughs> so, and what's fascinating to me now, 30 years later, is yes, there are fewer of those people, but the market is still pretty broad. And you can get people who are like, well, what is, I don't understand. It's not in plastic. It's not sliced. What is this bread? So we're still communicating and educating at all kinds of different levels. And then you have the breadheads who, who are like, this is not made from flour that you grew, grain that you grew yourself and then cleaned and then milled, you know. So. And then you say, listen, I'm going to leave Ann Arbor. I want to go to Paris. You decide that you want to go to cooking school there. You want to expand your skills. And we talked briefly before we hit record. And I want to get into everything that you mentioned because it's really cool. So I want to know how long did you plan on being there? What prompted this decision? And for you to explain to the listeners, you're married, you're young, you're not running in money, you're not, you know, independently wealthy, you, you want, you have a child and you decide to go to Paris. So kind of, (laughs) I'd like you to touch on all the reasons why you wanting to expand your skills, but. I think you mentioned to me off mic that the programs in the U.S. were longer. And so you really, you know, wanted to kind of avoid that. So bring us back. Right. Okay. So I had decided that I really wanted to be in the food business. When I first came to Ann Arbor, I thought, oh, I'll have some fun and work in restaurants because I always love to cook and bake as a younger person. And I don't want to go to school right away. I thought I'd be a lawyer or something. But um, and then I worked in restaurants and I really, really loved it. And so, uh, but I love school and I wanted to have, I wanted to, I wanted to learn about cooking and baking and have, as you said earlier in our conversation, have the time to concentrate on it. And I also wanted some legitimacy. I didn't want to feel like an imposter. So I wanted some education. Um, so I thought, okay, I want to go to cooking school. But, you know, the early part of my life was really um, shaped by, you know, doing whatever I want, you know, follow your passion, it'll all work out. And my husband is like that, too. You know, sometimes you have couples where they balance each other. Well, unfortunately, and fortunately, unfortunately, in this arena, we're both big risk takers. And you're like, oh, whatever, we can do it. So we got married when we were 23 and 24, unheard of amongst our friends. We loved each other. We still love each other. We wanted to have a family. It was like, yeah, let's get together. And then we <laughs> we had a child before either of us had a career. I mean, my husband was had a $12,000 stipend for being a graduate student. And at the time that I became pregnant, I think I was maybe making $19,000 a year as a sous chef at the Earl. But, oh, yeah, we can do it. Uh, <laughs> so we had a baby. Uh, and my husband was in graduate school. And I thought, I want to go to school. So where can I go? Well, a lot of programs in the United States at that time were at least a year and a half, two years, and usually got your associate's degree. And I didn't, I had gone to college. I didn't uh, need to do that. And I couldn't do that. I wanted my, I, my husband had to come with me. I didn't want to go just with my son and I wasn't going to leave our son um, with him. And so we had to find a place that we could both go. He's an archaeologist and he managed to I don't even know how this happened, but he knew of a collection at the Louvre of these particular stone bowls that he could study and write his dissertation on. So he got a grant in order to do that. 
And then I had the good fortune of applying for a scholarship from, I don't know if you know the organization, Les Dames Escoffier. So, right. And they were giving scholarships. And so they gave me a huge scholarship, $10,000 to help write, which is a lot. It was a lot at that time to help us go. And the program, I was going to go to a school called La Varenne. I don't know if anyone remembers that, but La Varenne um, had two programs, one in Paris and one in Burgundy. And so I signed up to go to Paris about three months before it was supposed to happen. They closed their Paris school. I was at my parents' house in Nova Scotia. I can see myself sitting in my father's chair. You know, some in some families we used to have your dad's chair. I was sitting in his chair with a landline, an old-fashioned, you know, turnpout in my head, crying on the phone to my husband. What's going to happen? I want to go to school. I have to go to school. Promise me I'll still go. So I found another program at the Ritz Hotel. At the Ritz, you could be a tourist and take classes. You could take one class, like one day or a week. And then they also had certificate programs. So I was a little less excited, but it turned, I learned a lot. They had some great chefs. I went, I had two programs. I think one was like nine weeks and one was 15 weeks. And I learned a lot. So we were there from June through um, like the middle of December, about six or seven months. And, you know, my husband did what he needed to do. And I got to go to school for that amount of time and, and be in Paris. And we did a little traveling in France, which, you know, it's just great to see the um, respect and love of food. And uh, so that's, that's what we ended up doing. Now, I think what's important is um, that through our whole marriage, you know, we've known each other since we were 19 and 20. It's been a back and forth because we both wanted to have a career, but we both really wanted to have a family. And so it's like, who is going to do what, when, and how do you, how are we going to put these together? And you're not in control of your success. And when you're you know, uh, an archaeologist, academic jobs are not just, you know, you got to go where you get one. And so deciding who will follow who and who will sacrifice um, their next move, what could be difficult. I have to give um, credit to my husband who early on said, we have to stop making decisions with the lens that it's your turn or my turn. We need to make decisions about what's best for our family. And if we and we both need to agree that that's that we're really in agreement before we do it, and then we'll go where, wherever it is. So that has really helped us not be frustrated with one another or feel embittered or like we made a sacrifice. So you know, he after Paris, we came back to Ann Arbor. I got I spent four years working at the bakery then, and then he finished uh, his PhD. He got a job in Denmark. I was okay to go because I was excited to go to Denmark. I couldn't work for a year because I wasn't allowed legally, and that was okay. We had already had a second child, Ruby. I got to stay home with them, which I was very happy to do. And then um, he decided he wanted to take a job in Manhattan, in New York, and so um, we came back and. Uh, that was a difficult time. Uh, you know, it's expensive in New York City. We had zero money. He was working at the Metropolitan Museum. My line is he was making enough money to maybe live in a studio apartment an hour outside of the city, let alone, you know, two children. So 
at that point when I decided to go to business school, because I thought we might be there for a very long time. Well, well, that's interesting because so you go to business school and what was the thought? What job were you going to get? What what golden egg did you have your eyes set on? (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Yeah, the golden egg was I wanted to be a management consultant. I was also very interested in like the consumer product companies. Uh, I didn't decide to work in one of them because they were all outside of the city. And it was sort of, okay, are we going to live in the suburbs and my husband would have to commute? I didn't really want to do that. Or am I going to commute from the city out to the suburbs? I don't really want to do that. And so, um, and I honestly, I mean, there I uh, don't mean to be critical of any of these companies. I'm sure they're wonderful places for the right people. But when I went to them to interview, you know, these massive campuses of these sort of corporate buildings, I just realized this is not, I am not that person. I will not be happy there. I, um, so I want, so the golden egg was being a management consultant. (laughs) Well, and it was perfect timing because, then you're in New York City, you're in this position. But while you're there, Zingerman's calls you and offers you the title of co-managing partner of the Bakehouse. Um, what are the thoughts? What's going through your mind when you receive this offer? Yeah, that's funny. It was a funny time. I remember it was Paul Saginaw who called me. He's one of the founders. And I was working um, for this firm and I was in the Chrysler building because that's where their offices were. And I was wearing nice clothes. That was one of the draws of being a manager consultant because, you know, after working in the food business and being dirty for 10 years, you're like, wow, I just want to wear some nice clothes and look okay. Um, And I get this call and I pick up the phone and I hear, he's a joker. I hear, Amy. I mean, I'm thinking, oh my God, it's like, how, you know, who's harassing me in New York? You know, <laughs> Amy, come back, come back. And then I went, Paul, it's Paul. And um, so I, I said, well, gosh, you know, it's really tempting, but I just went to business school and I have a hundred thousand dollars of debt. And I did that because it was an investment. And I'm thinking I'm going to have this career that will help me pay it off. I mean, how can that work coming back to the bakery? And Paul and Ari are fantastic and sort of dreamy, which is what helps them be fantastic. And Paul said, Amy, if it's the right thing to do, it'll all work out. <laughs> like, okay, but I'm I'm in New York City, one of the, you know, capital business capitals of the world. I just went to business school. Can you tell me how much I need to buy-in and what kind of salary I can draw. Oh, Amy, Amy, we'll work that out after you get here. Like, no, we're not going to work it out after I get here. I'll come and visit. Let's try to work out the details. So, um, well, so that was part of the conversation. But my husband, when this happened, he was not, he was in not home. He was on a dig. And so when he came home, I said, hey, you know, they want another partner. What do you think? Because he would have to give up his job. And there was no job for him in Ann Arbor. First of all, it's the wrong cycle for looking for, like, the academics. You know, this was sort of the winter. um, And, all you know, that year of job hunting was already in motion, so he couldn't. And you rarely go back and teach at the place that you had gotten your PhD. So it seemed highly unlikely that he would have a job there. And, you know, he said... Uh, uh, it didn't take us long. We said, yeah, let's do it. Um, you know, he, 
he is also <laughs> a risk taker. He said, you know what? I have this opportunity to run this dig and I, I think I could get them to let me teach a couple of classes, even if I'm not a professor and I'll find some funding and I'll run my dig and you can be at the bakery and let's, let's go. So we went. <laughs> yes. And you, did you know, was it taking a chance or did, was there a thought in the back of your head and your husband's, like as a family or, or solo that, yes, this is the right path? Like, was there a gut instinct or you were just going for it? Let's take this journey and see what happens. Well, I mean, I thought that this would be a good, I thought, I think we thought it would be good for me career wise. I think we thought it would be good for us as a family. Um, we love New York city. My mother's from New York. I used to go every year as a kid. I love it, but I didn't, it was difficult for us to live there. We didn't think even if I did well, that it was ever going to be, it might be okay, but it was never going to be easy. Um, we didn't really want that added stress. We'd rather just come and visit a couple of times a year than live with it. So we thought it would be good on all those levels. It was a big chance for him. It was taking a big risk for him, and but he seemed okay with it, and he's never really played by the academic rules. So, um, you know, we thought, okay, well, let's let's just try it. I mean, it's part of our thing of always just doing. <laughs> well, it's it's amazing to think though, like this call had that call not happened, you were you were $100,000 in on this career path. You you really weren't thinking of maybe the food world at that time. I, I think without that call, maybe five or 10 years, maybe after the debt was paid off that you would maybe consider, okay, I'm not happy in this career. I, I mean, we do say we probably would be divorced, but because <laughs> it was super stressful. Um, but yeah, I don't know what would have happened. So that's why you got to kind of be open to things, you know, that's why I'm open to people when they show up at the bakery and maybe they've had a different career. But when, when people show up and they say, I want to be here, I listen to them because they know themselves and they may know a fair amount about us. I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's talk maybe. So I'm, I'm pretty open and flexible, which is, you know, we say here at Zingerman's, your strengths lead to your weaknesses. So being open and flexible can be very, very good. It can also maybe get yourself into some situations that I'm like, oh my God, why did we do this? But we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll make it work. Now, what happened to him though, was it was tough. And, and for us, his, uh, that when we came back, the second Iraq war started. And his dig was in Syria and Syria shut down and would not let Americans in, which was smart. They didn't want to worry about us being there. And so he lost that dig. So all of a sudden he really had nothing. So that was a very difficult time um, for us because he was not very happy. And I was like, you know, taking off and super engaged and trying to make the bakery successful. And so we were in this very funny space together uh, and then he got a call from someone at University of Chicago. There's a museum there called the Oriental Institute. And they said, would you apply to be the museum director of the museum and the institute? And so he decided, we decided together that he would do, he got the offer. So he did that. So for seven years, he commuted from Chicago, from Ann Arbor to Chicago. He left every Monday morning and came back every Thursday night. And that 
so that was a challenge. But you know, he was not going to be happy. I mean, he didn't. He thought about switching careers. He didn't really want to. And this was a very good job offer for him. And so we found a way to kind of make it work. And then um, he uh, things started to not be so great there. And he called me one day. And this is a good example of how we had really gotten good at making decisions together. He said, "Are you ready for? Are you ready to quit this job?" And I said, I am so ready to quit this job. Just come home and whatever we have to do, we'll do. We need to sell our house and move into, you know, a one bedroom apartment. I, you know, whatever we need to do, it'll be so nice for you just to be home. And so he quit and, um, and he's, he uh, has now, you know, made another <laughs> um, path for himself. But um, yeah, in a way, when he came home, it was like, it was like, um, you know, sort of a second honeymoon, but that lasted for a very long time because it was so nice just to be together all the time and not have that separation. So, Well, Amy, you attended yeah. Harvard University mm-hmm. where you studied social movements and you received yes. your MBA from Columbia mm-hmm. University, as you mentioned. Why did you decide to study social movements? What attracted you to this topic? So I grew up in a small place in Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. Its name is Sydney. There were about 30 to 35,000 people, so not tiny. And it was a big, there was a steel mill there, and um, it's a pretty big coal mining community. So unions were big. Um, people, it was a tough life there. You, you, Uh, You know, most of my friends at best were working class, if not working poor. Many, many, many people were on unemployment. Um, My father had his own business and people would come to him. The local name for collecting unemployment was being on the pogey. I don't know if that's common to know, but they would come and say, Mr. Levitin, that was my maiden name. Would you hire me for just 10 weeks so then I can collect the pogey? Um, so I think um, I really had an, uh, I really cared about the underdog, you know, and, and people having being treated well. And so um, I was interested in move things that people did that were often against the sort of the standard in order to make their lives better, like unionization. Um, so I think that was one of the reasons that I got involved in it. And and then I was, you know, I was a young woman and I uh, cared about women's rights and about reproductive rights. And so I was interested in the not just the movement to, uh, you know, it's funny to talk about now to legalize abortion, right, but to even just legalize um, contraception. And so that's what I wrote my college um, dissertation on was um, the birth control movement. And so recently when they started talking about making contraception legal. I thought you were going back to the Comstock Act. I think that's what it was called, if I can remember. I mean, this was a long time ago when I wrote this. Um, So I was just very interested in social change. I do, one other aspect that I didn't bring up is I've always felt a little bit like the outsider. And I think that was also made me interested in social change and movements because um, there were, I'm Jewish. There were hardly any Jews in this community. There were four Jewish kids in my high school class of several hundred. So, you know, we were the weirdos um, and taking funny days off for different holidays. And so I felt a little bit on the edge in that way. And then, um, and my mother was American. And so, 
uh, that was also very weird at that time. And where I grew up there, people have a pretty strong accent and I didn't have that accent. Somehow I copied what my, how my mother spoke rather than my friends. And so that made me sort of stand out, even though I was born there, I don't, you know, and then I went to college and I thought, okay, now I'll feel like a part of, because I'm, I'll be more normal, I'll be in the United States and there'd be a fair number of Jewish people at Harvard. Um, but then I also felt on the outside because um, I remember one of the first weeks at school, some young man said to me, stop talking like that. You sound really stupid. And I said, talking like what? He said, that accent. So I think it was my Canadian accent, um, which I don't have as much now, but <laughs> like, oh gosh. So, and I was not prepared academically. So it was quite hard for me. I, I You have to take this, um, well, some people just passed into from the classes they took into these high level math classes, but I had to take this test and I, I got so nervous. I completely bombed the test. So I had to take um, what was called math AR. So it was like before you could even take the basic math classes. So I just like had to hide from every, I like, I, I didn't have to, I was so embarrassed. Like I just hid that from everybody. So I felt a little bit on the outside there. And then I come to work in restaurants and there weren't a lot of people who had gone to college period. So then I was on the outside there. And so I think I also just had an interest in how do people on who see themselves on the edge or not part of the norm, how do they function in society and how do they bring about change that allows them to feel like they're a, they're a part and they belong. Um, so yeah, I think that sort of psychological thing was a big part of why I got into studying those. So it's really interesting to see what you were studying back then, how it's so current and right on right now. And then when I was reading about your background, the first thought that came to mind was, okay, social movements, food is, food just plays a role in life, right? We just, it's, it is just part of our, our nutrients, our life force energy, and here we are as social movements, we have to feed all these protesters. And we saw that so clearly during 2020, especially, I mean, so many protests that we saw around the country and all these chefs and restaurants who were stepping up and feeding protesters out on the lines. So it's really cool to interview you and get your perspective. And I would like to discuss the connection between social movements and food as you see it. When I mention this connection, what's the first idea that crosses your mind? Okay, the very first one is that I think one of the reasons that I'm at Zingerman's and why I stay is because we've always tried to be make, bringing about some kind of social change. And so there are several different ways. One was with the food and just bringing artisan food, you know, old food ways back, um, food not full of preservatives, not highly manufactured. And so that was, you know, that was a big thing. A lot of people now, you know, you can find this food all over. But in, in 1982, when the deli was starting this, right, it was, it was a part of a, a revolution that was happening in many other places in the United States that probably started more in the 70s in California and Alice Waters but was still in large parts of the country is not known. So changing how we think about food and um, it was a big, a big part of social change. But then the other thing at Zingerman's is we talked about, and you know, I, the credit goes to Polinari about being local long before people talked about local. And we weren't just talking. And I think 
and I shouldn't say just, but we were talking about staying local physically and not replicating and having chains. Now, that's a great way to do business. You can make a lot of money and you can give good service to people. So I'm not critical of that. It's just not what they wanted to do. And it was a which I think is also interesting, of wanting to be a part of a community and recognizing that you are successful because of the community support and that you can give to the community in really meaningful ways when you live in it because you know it and you understand what's going on and who's in need and what the systemic reasons are for whatever's happening and how development of your community is going to change or you know whether people can afford to live there. So there was that kind of movement that was happening. And then the final thing that we have always cared about and continue to do a lot of work on is trying to change the nature of work. And of course, we hear about it from all the tech companies in California, and oh, you can play ping pong while you're working, whatever. But we, and we were trying to make the food business a good place to work, not a place that was just abusive or unpleasant. Um, and one of the reasons I ended up at the deli was because I had some experiences, which I didn't mention the names of, so don't think don't associate with those places that um you know was not very good and i thought god maybe i can't stay in this field because i'm not very good at being treated badly it's like there's no reason you don't need to treat me like that and so then that's why i went to one of i saw ari at zingerman's deli and i said hey you know i'm I'm trying to find a good place to work i love what you do here i don't want to make sandwiches i love them it's just not what i want to do where should i go and he said go and work with my friend frank so I came here because Zimmerman's was already known back then as being a really good place to work. And so we continue to try to um, be a place where people can grow and develop, um, learn how to treat others with kindness and respect, be treated with kindness and respect. So a lot of what I'm doing is certainly about food, but I spend a lot of my time just talking to people, helping them, helping them think about what they want, whether it's here at the bakery or leaving, going back to school or you know, a different career path, whatever it happens to be, and helping people actually achieve more than they ever thought they could. Because you know, in the food business, a lot of people land here who feel like, or more in the past than now, who felt like they didn't have a lot of other opportunities. And there's nothing more joyful for me, for them to see that, you know, I don't know what went on, like why they weren't successful in the typical American path of success, you know, whatever school wasn't their thing, but they're super smart and super capable and they can do a lot and they can contribute and they can benefit from it. Um, And so it's great to see when people realize that, you know, they're great. And yeah, that other path, that was not for them, but there are other ways to have a really nice life. So, Well, in her book, Mindset, psychologist Carol Dweck says that success comes from having the right mindset rather than intelligence, talent, or education. The basic idea divides people into two groups, fixed mindset and growth mindset. People with a fixed mindset believe that they're born with certain intelligence, skills, and abilities that cannot change. A growth mindset means that you thrive on challenge and don't see failure as a way to describe yourself, but as a springboard for growth and developing your abilities. Amy, do you think that success in both our personal and professional lives can be influenced by how we think about ourselves? And do you think that your beliefs influenced which paths you've taken in life? 
I, you know, I have a growth mindset and I, I just, I don't know where it came from, but I remember in the early days of the bakery, because Frank was much more in the fixed mindset. And we actually had a conversation about it. We didn't call it that. And uh, we, yeah, the conversation was, I said, I always assume the best of people and that they can change and grow and develop. And I'm sensing that maybe you um, assume that if somebody does something wrong or has a mistake or isn't successful right now, that maybe they can't be. And, you know, that's, that's just not how I think about it. So obviously um, he evolved, but, and we have a great, we had a great partnership because we could talk about those things, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I assume that people can grow and change. And I think that it's super limiting personally and super limiting for a business. If you don't think that, because, you know, people sometimes say to us, at seniors, oh, well, you just must get better candidates because all these people here are like, no, we have the same pool that you have. It's what you decide to do with people when they arrive and how you treat them and giving them opportunities and training and support and being okay with it not always being perfect or not at all. I mean, I tell managers when they start here, you're not going to feel like you know what you're doing until you've been doing this job for three years. First year, you're going to be like, oh, second year, it's like, oh, I remember that from last year. Oh, I'm going to do it a little bit better. Then third year, like, oh, I kind of know what's going on and now I can move beyond. And, and but those first couple of years and even, you know, they're, they're going to be a little rough. And uh, yeah, I don't know. So I'm a big proponent of, um, of, of the growth mindset. And I would say, obviously, that has influenced the paths that you have chosen because you have this growth mindset, you and your husband, actually, that you're open. You know, growth mindset, I, I would say, also can be considered being open to whatever path, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I'm still thinking about what I'm going to do next. <laughs> yeah, and I tell people, like, I'm going to... Yeah, they what are you gonna do in your third, you know, I forget there's some phrase that people are using like, oh, I think you're gonna be a marriage counselor. Really? Why do you think you can do that? Like, why can't I do that? Like, why would you assume that? Awesome. Growth mindset. Well, thoughts run through our minds constantly. Sometimes we can all get into our heads too much and overthink. And recently I read a great analogy for thoughts from author Pam Grout. Here it is. They're like a line of ants marching across your picnic blanket. You can choose to observe them as they keep on marching straight off the other side of the blanket and disappear, or you can choose to scoop them up, interact with them, make them your focus, fuss over them, and they'll probably bite you too. So I love that analogy, and I've been kind of visualizing that when thoughts creep into my mind. Amy, how do you choose which thoughts to engage with? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that that has changed over time. I think I could um, get sucked into some negative thoughts um, a lot more easily. I think I probably started to change a little bit around age 40, really had a physical sensation of I'm 56 now, of feeling more comfortable in my skin starting around 40. Maybe it was just feeling a little more confident. You know, the business was going well. I was feeling more settled. My marriage was happy. My children were okay. But um, before that, I think I could, you know, really get 
as we say now, triggered and just uh, allow myself to um, get enraged or very miserable about something. But um, that has stopped. And I think sometimes now I, now I understand I can just like, don't go there. It's not helpful. It's just not helpful. I don't want to feel the way it will make me feel if I keep down that path. I don't want to expend the energy that's, that it's going to take. I have other things I'd rather be doing and just, just stop. Um, and I realized I just, I said it the other day, I was having a conversation about something kind of like this. Like, you know, when I, if I were to allow myself to do that, it's just indulging. It's indulging myself and not that it feels so good. Like maybe at the beginning, there's a bit of an adrenaline rush when you're upset about something or you feel indignant about something. But over time, it, it doesn't feel so good. And, um, and I, and it, what I just realized it's sort of indulgent. So, um, I, I think that answers you a little bit. I, I also have to say, you know, I thought when you were starting to talk about this, that you might be thinking about, you know, like being perfectionist versus not. Um, and I, I, my weakness is sometimes I'm not as enough of a perfectionist, perhaps I'm a little bit pragmatic. I'm, I'm a pretty big, like that is good enough. And so I really like having people in my life who are like, I think that could be a little bit better. Cause I don't know. It's, I think it comes from, I'm, can be pretty impatient, which is a good thing sometimes in the food business. Cause you've got to just get it done. Cause it's, you're not going to have a lot of time, but um, I need people around me who are a little bit more per perfectionist to kind of say, slow down. It's okay if we don't get it done today. It would be better if we waited and didn't make this deadline and did it a little bit better. Um, so it's finding that balance. Um, I think I'm more of a satis, you know, reach satisfaction, but not maybe max. I don't maximize all the time. And uh, so. I kind of battle, I battle with that a little bit. Well, how do you continue to find inspiration each year? So right now we're working a lot on um, local grain. We have a couple of little stone mills in the bakery that we mill some of our own flour. But what I'm most excited about right at the moment is trying to work with some farmers who are about an hour from here on maybe actually building a mill that could serve um a particular part of Michigan that there's they're growing a fair amount of organic grain and there isn't a mill that's local that is organic and so they have to send it all over to other places in order to actually have it milled and so these farmers that we met just about a month ago are interested in in starting a mill so that's my that's that's one thing that I'm excited about I'm also excited about little tabletop mills that are trying to get home bakers to have one in their kitchens and um, because it's just like grinding coffee, grinding your wheat berries, it takes no time. And when you grind your own flour, I mean, the aromas that are, it, it, the flavor is so much more pronounced in the, you know, just for a, a few days after doing it, but especially, you know, if you use it within minutes, um, nutrition too, if you use it whole, which you, you know, most people don't sift it at home. Yeah. And it's fun. And it's interesting to show kids too. And so we're trying, we have kids camps in our school in the summer. And I uh, really encourage the teachers to have the mill in the class because that's where we're really going to start the revolution is if kids see it and they're like, oh, this is neat. And this is, this could be normal. And this is what a wheat berry looks like. Cause I, you know, I don't know how many years it was even as a baker before I actually saw a wheat berry. 
before, right? And so, um, so I, you know, it's going to take some time, but it's all right. Good things take time. I think that's a great thing. That's exciting. Besides being a marriage counselor, what does your ideal future look like? This could be our ideal future, you know, 30 years from now, a year from now, whatever, six months from now. Well, you know, so um, Frank Carolla retired a year and a half ago. And I have a new partner whose name is Jason Restrick, who I've worked with for most of 20 years. And we're thinking about taking on another partner in a few years. So my real, you know, my my more grounded um, goal is to have everybody in the bakery well-trained and in a good spot so that, you know, I'm nice to have, but not needed. And so I think I would love to work, you know, sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, <laughs> nine to five. <laughs> and, uh, you know, or be involved in the big project, trying to help make that happen. Um, that, you know, I'm not anticipating having that happen, being at that space for certainly five years, maybe 10 years from now. But I would like a little more time. I, you're not old enough to know this yet, but it seems like, and I talk to people who are more my age, like, it seems like it takes more time in the morning to get up and get going. And then I need more time at night to kind of wind down. And my energy level to some degree is not, I mean, still pretty high, maybe to compare it to other some other people, I mean, but it's not what it was. And so I, um, I look forward to having a little more personal time to just explore other things, you know, just a garden. I have two grandchildren now and I love taking care of them. And I also want to make the, my, the life a little bit easier for my son and daughter-in-law. We never, my husband and I never lived near family and it can be hard to have children and not a support network. So I would like to be available to them and to my grandchildren to just make life easy and have some fun. So that would be my, my dream. Well, synchronicities, have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry? If so, please describe the moment. Hmm. Well, I think it, the, the biggest was that first one that I kind of referred to about a chef telling me to go and work at a startup. So, but the story is a little bit longer. My husband is from San Francisco and his grandmother was living in a place called San Mateo. My mom grew up there. Oh, that's funny. Huh. Well, there, here's a synchronicity. So um, she was living next door to the executive chef in the St. Francis Hotel. And as grandmothers do, I was very, you know, this was, um, I hadn't come to the bakery yet. So this was, I don't know, 1989, 1990. She talked to the chef and said, you know, my, my new granddaughter is um, coming to visit and she thinks she wants to be a chef. Would you be willing to meet with her and give her some advice about her career? And so we come to visit and she said, oh, this chef is willing to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh God, help me, but Okay. Thanks. Her name was Ria. Thank you, Nana Ria. And so he let us come and talk to him. And he asked me a bunch of questions. I can't remember the whole conversation, but I remember him saying, you, you know, you should consider going and working at a place that's just getting going because you will be able to have much more of an impact and it will be a good career opportunity. So when Ari said to me in the deli that day, my friend Frank is opening a bakery. It was like, oh, okay, this chef said, go to a place that's just starting. 
oh, here's a place that's just starting. Okay, I hadn't really thought about working in a bakery. I really thought I would work in a restaurant, but let's do it. And so I think that that was really the big moment for me that it's like, okay, listen, find, put it together, make it happen. It, and that was how many years later? It was three years later. It's just that reminder that sometimes, I think sometimes people think when something happens, it's just kind of away from their mind, you know, like think synchronicities or moments don't always happen right after a day after a week after, you know, something happens or you talk to someone, it can happen a year later, two years later, three years later, 10 years later, you know, very cool. Yes, yes. And Right. And I, I actually just said to my son yesterday, you know, I'm saying I was giving him some words of wisdom. I said, I'm going to say these things to you. And they may not really resonate with anything that's going on with you right now. But people have said things to me over the years where I get to that point. I didn't really know what that point was going to be when they said it, but I'm there. And I think back, oh, they told me that they said, watch out for this or don't do that or be careful of and oh, here I am. That's what they were talking about. It didn't, I didn't really understand. I listened because they were someone I wanted to listen to. I held on to it. I didn't get it, but okay, now I get it because now I'm in it. And uh, now, I'm, now I can more easily really reflect on what it was they told me. Right. And so I, I don't think I was walking around thinking about what that chef had said, <laughs> but it just, it just sort of like, oh, okay, here we are. Oh yeah, that guy said that to me. <laughs> I don't even remember his name. And you knew to make this huge move and bam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm going to listen to him. He was clearly successful to some degree. So I'm going to listen. Yeah. Well, kind of in the same realm, uh, a flow state also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity and is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, enjoyment in the entire process. It doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention that you're giving the activity, and it's really a euphoric feeling. And it's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. For you, it could be as you're baking, perhaps. I'm wondering if you've ever reached this state. If you have, please describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like being in that state. Hmm. Wow. So you're touching on some things with the, you know, growth mindset fixed and this that I associate with positive psychology. Do you know anything about positive psychology? Right. Yeah. So um, I think for me, I can, I get into flow state most often actually at home when I'm making dinner. I just love to cook. And so if I have enough time and I'm not rushing and it's something that I really want to make, uh, it, it can just be perfect. Yes, I just it, it's exactly what you just said. I'm just there. I'm enjoying it. I just love the process of it. And um, I, I'm just happy. I uh, From working in food businesses for most of my life, I always have to have music on. I have to have the radio on or something. So I, it can be just like talk radio. So it might be NPR or it might be music. I have the radio on and, um, you know, maybe I have a glass of wine, maybe not just depends. And I'm just cooking whatever that meal is. Um, that, that is my place of flow state. 
Sometimes when I go to yoga class, it is also because I'm just following the teacher. It's so nice to let go. I'm not in charge. I need to just listen and follow. And so that sense of joy um, can come at those times too. Beautiful. Well, we're at the end. Amy, thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something we just discussed, a lesson you've learned on your journey, or general life advice that you live by? I think one thing that I've become very committed to that we practice here at Zingerman's, but I now practice in my personal life, and actually even my daughter-in-law said to me the other day that she thought she needed to do, is this process that was always kind of funny, she's never worked here, is um, visioning, where you think about your preferred future. So some point in the future, could be a year or five years, whatever, in your career or in your uh, community life or in your family life, what does success look like? And then writing that, you write it in the present, but as if you were already in the future. So, uh, and uh, you share it with other people because they can help you achieve it. And it's sort of, what does it look like? Not how do you do it or how do you get there? And so that practice of visioning, I think has been really um, important in my life. And I see the positive impact it can have on other people. So when, you know, people self edit, oh, I think I want to do whatever, you know, such and such, but oh, um, I probably can't, or it's not the smart thing, or there's no way it will happen, or I don't have enough money. It's like, no, 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 no. Just write down what is it, what is it that you want to do? What would success look like? And then bring it to people who might help you find the way to get there. And you might not get 100% there, but you might get 80% there. And that can be really, really great. So I I think I would share that with other people. If they're interested, I'm sure there's a lot of literature out there. We didn't create that at Zingerman's, but look into visioning. I love that. Oh, yeah. 80% all day. I'll take 80% all day because you're doing what you know is true for you and you feel great doing it. So I agree with Amy, take the 80. Well, where or how is the best way for people to connect or get in touch with you, Amy? Oh, I'm happy for people to, the best way is to email me and I'm happy to share that. So A-M-B-E-R-L-I-N-G, E-M-B-E-R-L-I-N-G at Zingerman's, Z-I-N-G-E-R-M-A-N-S, no apostrophe.com. Send me an email. Happy to connect. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Eaten Yet wherever you get your podcast.